I've often heard it said, including it has to be said by politicians, that faith and politics should not mix. The assumption behind this statement is that faith is something private and spiritual, otherworldly, if you like, whereas politics is about real life, tough choices, and the challenges of society. And so contributors from faith, contributions from faith leaders on debates such as assisted dying or the refugee crisis are seen with not a little suspicion. The view of some is that faith leaders should stay in their churches, synagogues or mosques and quietly lead their people in worship and not get involved in political debates. Now I can't speak for the Islamic faith, But as far as the Judeo-Christian tradition is concerned, such a division between faith and politics makes no sense when judged against the pages of the Bible. For the Bible espouses not a privatised, candle-based spirituality, but rather a serious engagement with the challenges of real life, an engagement rooted in the God who himself addressed those challenges head-on, In other words, the God of the Bible is not a remote and privatised God, but rather a God engaged with real life and human existence. And his people are called to do and be the same. And we're going to see this very clearly today as we begin our autumn teaching series called Abraham and Sons, looking at 20 or so chapters from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at events that happened around 4,000 years ago. But as far as God's mission to the world is concerned, these events could not be more important. Because we are going to learn, starting today, about God's saving purposes for the world he made. His power to bring that saving plan about. And his call to his people to live lives of faith in a demanding and fallen world we're going to see God getting stuck into his world with challenges aplenty. I first began to get to grips with the story of Abraham uh, when we uh, looked around five years ago uh, at the theme, the mission of God, and saw Abraham's place within that saving plan of God. Uh, I'm so pleased to have this opportunity this term to kind of look for longer with you at the story of him and his descendants. Because not for nothing is Abraham referred to by virtually every writer in the New Testament. His call and his story, if you like, they set the direction for the whole of the journey of the Bible. A journey whose destination is Jesus Christ. If you're here for the first time or you're exploring faith, I I hope what you're going to see is the beginnings of a great plan of salvation that God has for the world and a plan that can involve you as well. If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, I pray you'll both be encouraged and challenged to step out afresh in the faith that Abraham and his descendants had. Perhaps you'll turn with me, therefore, as we look at this Bible together to page 13 of our Red Bibles. There is a cream uh, batting order uh, in your new sheets. And you'll see that I'm suggesting we look at this passage under three headings. First of all, looking for hope. Secondly, blessed for blessing. And thirdly, faith for the journey. 
So first of all, looking for hope, and we're really recapping chapters 3 to 11 of Genesis. And what I want us to do is really important that we put these little verses that we heard read to us in context with what has gone before. So shall we just recap the story of the world before we get to Genesis chapter 12? Won't take that long. First of all, we've seen the story of creation itself. That's in chapters 1 to 2 of Genesis. As God, in all his power, brings the universe into being out of nothing and fills it with plants and living beings of all kinds, including human beings who are made in God's image. Uh, That's basically the substance of chapters 1 to 2 of Genesis. Uh, And by the way, these uh, chapters are not a handbook of exactly how creation happened, but they are a depiction of the one whose power brought creation about, out of nothing. But then, to this beautiful and good creation that God looks at and says this is good, into that world comes trouble. That trouble is ushered in by the fall, narrated in Genesis 3, When Adam and Eve choose to reject the ways of God, to turn their backs on God. And so they start a pattern of human beings being out of relationship with the God who made them, with their creator God. And that pattern is continued in the wickedness of the times of Noah and the flood in chapter 6. And with the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, as God frustrates the attempts of people to achieve absolute sovereignty over their own lives. That's what Babel is about. It's basically the people saying, we want to be masters of our own destiny. And God frustrates that. And that's basically the story so far. It's the story of a good creation thwarted by human sin. It is a sobering picture of the human race and the world in which they live. In fact, at the end of chapter 11, the story is particularly bleak after Babel because after the fall and after Noah, there were signs of God's grace because after the fall, God clothed Abraham, uh, so Adam and Eve. And after Noah and the flood, God promised never again to flood the world. After Babel, there's no such hope. The people are just scattered, isolated from each other and the God who made them. This is how... Uh, the Old Testament writer, Chris, oh, sorry, he's a scholar, Chris Wright, puts it in his book, The Mission of God, writing of this picture at the end of Genesis 11. It's a, a few paragraphs I want to quote because I think they put it so well. He writes, At one level, all the basic infrastructure of God's create, great creation project is still there. The heavens and the earth follow their allotted rounds and seasons, Crucial boundaries are being preserved between the day and the night, the sea and the dry land, the earth and the great deep, human and divine realms. Vegetation and animals are proliferating as intended. Human beings are multiplying in families, in nations, and are spreading to fill the earth. But at another level, everything is tragically adrift from the original goodness of God's purpose. The earth lies under the sentence of God's judgment because of human sin. Human beings are adding to their catalogue of evil as the generations roll past. Jealousy, anger, murder, vengeance, violence, corruption, drunkenness, sexual disorder, arrogance. Every inclination of human hearts is perduringly evil. Technology and culture are advancing, but the skill that can craft instruments for music and agriculture can also forge weapons of violent death. To put it more briefly, and in my own words, 
The picture here is of a world that is beautiful and broken. Beautiful for it is made by a good God, but broken because it is stained by human sin. But if we're honest, we don't need to go back to the end of Genesis chapter 11 to find a world that is beautiful and broken. We see it on a sandy Turkish beach, where by day holiday makers enjoy the beauty and the sun, and yet where the next dawn yields bodies of migrants washed up on the beach, drowned while seeking a safe place to live. We see it at the port of Calais, as Eurostar and Eurotunnel shuttle people like us to much-anticipated holidays of fun, food and wine, all the good things of God's creation, while those camping in the so-called jungle dream of what we take for granted and are seeking a holiday from. And we see it here in Claygate, as many enjoy a high standard of living and apparent affluence, and yet where relationships are fractured, grievances are held, and lives are burdened. Our brokenness is often well hidden, but I can tell you it's there. Beautiful and yet broken. That's the world we live in. Do you recognise this world? Perhaps you know something of the beauty and the joy in your own life, but perhaps you know something of the brokenness and the pain as well. Perhaps you're in your own family. Perhaps in your own life. And so, and so like then, we too now long for hope. Hope for a world that is not so stained by sin as we see it on the news in our road and in the mirror. Hope for ourselves and hope for others. Hope that goes beyond simply increasing the net wealth of human race as if that will sort out all our problems. And we ask the question, what did God do about that beautiful but broken world then? And what has he done since? And what will he do today? You see, the Bible does not present us with a varnished view of the world, one from which we can retreat thinking all is well. It confronts us with the reality of a world that is beautiful and broken and forces us to seek hope somewhere and ask questions of someone. In fact, one of the great strengths of the Bible, it seems to me, is that it gives a more honest and convincing diagnosis of the human problem than any other sacred text. It doesn't explain, to be sure, why every piece of suffering happens, but it deals with the brokenness of the world up front. If you like, that's the backstory. That's the context in which we begin to approach this pivotal moment in God's story with the world, which is Genesis chapter 12. And let's look at this under what I've called the second heading, which is blessed for blessing. Because at this point, at this point in human history, where the beauty and the brokenness of the world are so clear for all to see, at that moment in human history, Abraham enters stage right. He's called Abram at this stage. He acquires the name Abraham in a few chapters' time. Uh, We know a little bit about him already from the back end of chapter 11. He is son of Terah. He's wife to Sarai, although we know from verse 30 of chapter 11 that Sarai has not been able to have children. And Terah has moved with Abram and Sarai and their nephew Lot from Ur, which is southeastern Iraq, to Haran, which is western Syria today. 
when God speaks to Abram, at which point in the journey we can't be sure, but it's that message in verses 2 and 3 that I want us to look at first. These words are so crucial, some of the most valuable words in the whole Bible. I want us to see two things that God says to Abram. First of all, he says that Abram will be blessed. Look with me at verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. What is Abram being promised? He's being promised a great family, which is quite a promise since he has no children yet. He's being promised a fine legacy, a great reputation and all the blessings of God. He's being promised everything that a man of those days would have longed for. But secondly, God says that Abram will be a blessing to others. Look with me at the end of verse 2. You will be a blessing. And at the end of verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's promise for Abram is not simply that he will be blessed, but that through him and his family and and the nation, it becomes all peoples or nations will be blessed. Did you see what we're seeing here? What we're beginning to see here is the grand, universal, kind of cosmic plan. His scope of God's saving plan for his beautiful and yet broken world. Yes, he is calling one man here to be blessed and have a family. Yes, he will build one chosen people, Israel, through this man's descendants. But this man and the nation which he sires is called to be a blessing to others, indeed to the whole world, showing God's care and love and drawing the whole world to worship the one true God. And ultimately from this nation, from Abraham's greater son, will become the Lord Jesus Christ who will take on himself the brokenness, the pain and the sin of the whole world so that everyone, but everyone has the chance to come back to God. You see, the story we're going to be looking at over the next term is not just the story of one man and one family. It is the story of the man through whom God wishes to funnel his blessing to the whole world. This is the very first step of God's saving plan, a plan that was to involve the whole world. And it started with Abraham and the calling God gave him to be blessed And to be a blessing. This is the beginning of God's salvation plan to the world. A plan which will find its culmination in Jesus Christ. You see, Abram, he's not just blessed for the sake of himself. He's not given a family so he can feel good about himself. He's given a family. He is blessed for the sake of others. For the sake of the world God created and loves so much. And I think we can just pause there and think about that application and that principle for our own lives. Blessed for blessing. Just think about that. Blessed for blessing. Because we are not blessed for ourselves, but for others. We are not to hoard blessings, but to share them. And that speaks to me, it suggests in two ways. First of all, it speaks to me of a mindset that might help us as we think about this country's response to the refugee crisis. A Christian contribution to this crisis might remind us that the blessings we have are to be shared and not hoarded. And while that does not propose an easy answer to a complex problem, it suggests to me a heart and a mindset that is more concerned with others' basic welfare 
than our own luxuries. Blessed for blessing, not for hoarding. Secondly, the principle of being blessed for the sake of others speaks to me of how we share the blessings we have in Christ. For here, right at the start of God's salvation plan, we see that God wants all people to know his blessing. God is not interested in religious people behaving like a club superior to others. That's what made him so mad at various points in Israel's history. Uh, Sometimes people say to me, oh, the Old Testament is kind of God and Israel, but in the New Testament, God starts loving everybody. That's just not true if you look in Genesis chapter 12. This pivotal text, God wants his blessing to reach all nations. That was true then, and it is true today. He wants his people to share his blessings so that the whole world knows of his love. That's the vision, by the way, between all that we do as a church. That's the vision behind our guest Sunday and the vision behind it, that we simply invite somebody we know to share the blessing that we've received. That's all it is. We we cannot be a church that kind of keeps that blessing to ourselves. Because in the Bible, God's people are blessed in order to bless others. Let me just give you an example of how it works, which might help you think about it. Last year, before I headed off to France on holiday um, with the family, I was chatting to a friend at at Synod in York, and uh, when she found out I was going to this particular part of France, she told me about a great historical theme park called Puy de Fou. And she said, we loved it. She said, I think you'd love it too, you must go. So on her recommendation, we duly went, and we had a fantastic time. It was actually, uh, we went on James's eighth birthday, and he said it was the best birthday ever, which is, I mean, you can only remember three of them. But anyway, that was the uh... <laughs> question is, okay, so we'd have this amazing day. The question is, what were we going to do with that amazing blessing? Because it did feel like a huge blessing. What were we going to do with it? Were we going to try and keep it to ourselves as our little special secret that we and no other people were going to find out about? No, no, it was so good, that blessing. We just felt we wanted to share it with others. So when on the ferry over this year, uh, I met another friend, um, uh, and he was going to the Vendée as well, and I said, well, listen, here's one place you've got to go as a family, a place called Puy de Fou, you're going to love it. Uh, and Because I knew that if I shared a blessing, I wanted others to share it too. And I was thrilled when he emailed me last week and said they'd gone as a family and had a blast. You see, when you've been blessed, when you have genuinely received a blessing of God, You want to share that with others. It's the most natural thing to do. That's what God was saying to Abraham that day. He's saying, be blessed and be a blessing to others. And that is what we as Christians are called to do, to share the blessings that we know in Jesus Christ with others. It's the most natural thing in the world that says, please come to church with me. I'd love to invite you. Now, if they say yes or no, that's God's business, not ours but we are blessed for the sake of blessing. So we've seen the context of this passage, which is a world that was looking for hope. We've seen the promise of God to Abram that he will be blessed for blessing. Now let's look at the faith for the journey that Abraham does. Let's see what Abram does in verses 4 to 9. Basically, he does exactly what God calls him to do in verse 1. He leaves his country, his people, and his father's household, and he sets off to Canaan in the south, some 400 miles south. 
And if you think about it, that was a journey with huge challenges. Practical challenges in terms of the distance to cover. Emotional challenges in terms of leaving his father and all the security that meant. Spiritual challenges in terms of just wondering what the future would hold. I'm sure that as Abram set out on this journey, there were so many questions whirling around his head. And chief among them, I think, was going to be, how is any of this going to happen since they don't have any children, let alone a great family? And yet, Abram seems so clearly sustained by a simple faith which took God at his word. And the worship he builds, sorry, the, 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 the altars he builds are a sign of that worship. He believes God's promises to him, and he walks not by what he can see, because what he can see is very little of this great plan of God, but by what he's heard. And it's this faith, this taking God at his word, that we will see tested, strained, and yet grow in the weeks to come. As we follow the story of Abram and God's call and purposes in his life. And I just want to draw out two applications in this for for us today. The first is from noting that this journey that Abram takes is the first of many migrant journeys taken by God's people in the Bible. You see, Abram was the first person of faith to leave all that was familiar and travel to an unknown land, but he wasn't the last. If you've done Alpha here at Holy Trinity, you might know that I describe the Bible as a, as a story of six journeys. Because God's people make six crucial journeys in the story of God's dealing with the world. Journey number one is this journey of Abraham from Ur in southeastern Iraq to Canaan in the Promised Land, up the River Tigris and down into the Promised Land. Journey number two is the journey of Jacob and his family to meet his son Joseph in Egypt and settle there in order to receive food. Journey number three is a journey we looked at for the last couple of years in the autumn when we've seen Moses and the Hebrews leave the slavery of Egypt through Mount Sinai and the Sinai Desert through to the Promised Land. Journey number four is that tragic journey when the people of God had so walked away from his ways that they were destroyed in Babylon and uh, destroyed in Jerusalem and exiled to Babylon. Journey number five is when, 70 years later, they returned in drips and drabs, a broken and yet hoping people, back to Jerusalem. And journey number six, that's the journey that started off the resurrection and Pentecost, when God's people began to scatter throughout the known world with the good news of Jesus Christ, and that journey continues. There are more migrant journeys that add to that as well. You might add the story of Jesus who soon after his birth had to flee for safety to Egypt. You see, God's people know what it is to be a migrant people. That's what Abraham was. And it's this story that God reminds them of so much when he gives them the law and asks them to care for the alien in their midst. It's striking, you know, if you read the whole of the Old Testament law, and it is fairly dense, just the number of times God speaks of care for the refugee, as if the people of God, once they'd stopped being refugees, would forget what it was like. But he's saying, remember, you were once sojourners yourself. 
and don't forget to care for those who are refugees in your own land. God's word does not allow his people to see refugees as anything other than human beings for whom God has a particular concern. I recognised earlier that the refugee crisis is complex, but as Christians, we have within our own faith a particular emphasis on care for the refugee, and we will do well to speak out on this at a time like this. I was really grateful for the leadership by Justin Welby, uh, who has spoken very well in the past week. And above all, we are called to pray with compassionate hearts, as many as have done in the 24-7 prayer initiative over the last week. If you want to find out more about how you can demonstrate your care, you can think about things Mike mentioned at the top of the service, and do read this excellent booklet from the Jubilee Centre called Immigration and Justice, uh, which reflects on what the Bible says on what I was describing as the many migrant journeys of God's people in the Bible, and how we as members of a local church can be part of changing the debate in Britain. They're available in the bookstall, they're two pounds. Uh, do buy that today. But the second application of Abram's migrant journey of faith is to our own walk with the Lord. We've begun to see this morning that as Abraham set out, he needed to take God at his word. He could not see in any way how things were going to work out. But he believed that God would do what he said, and that was enough. I I don't think you need a degree in theology to work out how that might speak to us. Isn't that what we're called to do? To journey by faith and not by sight. So much of what we're called to believe and do is actually unseen. We can't see God the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. We can't see the forgiveness that is offered or God's presence with us. We can't see the hope to which we've been called. But as the Apostle Paul puts it, we walk by faith and not by sight. We just take God at his word and journey according to it. And you see, there's an encouragement for us that Abram at this point in his story did not have. Yes, it had an amazing revelation from God, but that was it. We have so much more. We know that God did provide a son for Sarai, his wife. And God did, in time, bring his saving purposes to fruition. That through Abraham, a people was built. And through that people, a greater son was born, Jesus Christ. And that through that son, the whole world was drawn to himself. You see, we are called not to a blind faith in the God we hardly know, which I think Abram was, but to an informed faith in a God who has revealed himself to us, in the Jesus who lived, died, rose again, and ascended to reign in glory. I don't know how you are called to live by faith, and not by sight this morning, just as Abram was. Maybe you need faith to keep serving at work, although you are seeing little fruit for the Lord. Maybe you need faith to keep praying, although you are feeling little back in return. Maybe you need faith to keep hoping for a world where our present suffering will be no more. 
Maybe you need faith to keep loving a family member when they don't love you back. I don't know what faith you need, but I do know that we are all called, like Abram was, to walk in faith, looking in one place alone, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we trace Abraham and his family's journey of faith, a journey with as many downs as ups, my prayer is that we will learn much about what it means for us to journey faithfully in this beautiful and broken world. And above all, to discover more of the salvation plan of God, a plan for the whole world, a plan through which a people were blessed for blessing, and a plan to be journeyed by faith alone. Let me pray for us.